and the things that make you different are more compelling stories than anyone else has got in effect to get onto the role or the career that you that you most want to do. So what we try and do, I guess, is give young people the opportunity to build those stories. The other big advantage, I guess, about bringing in real world, real world challenges to which nobody knows the answer is there is, of course, no right answer. And to a lot of the challenges, there is no answer, but you just explore it from a different perspective because you don't solve the problem, you ease it. My take that when people say you need to be more realistic is because they lack the imagination and maybe the courage to accept the fact that the, that the answer is the answer. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Andy Middleton. Andy is the founder director of the TYF Group, an innovative and visionary social enterprise. TYF's mission is to train revolutionaries, giving normal moms and dads and kids business teams and community groups the confidence, skills, and reason to revolutionize the way they play, think, and connect with nature. He is someone who connects people across different industries. He's a founding partner at Do Collective, where there he orchestrates the potential power of a virtual consulting team and hundreds of the world's best thinkers and doers. I often struggle finding titles for these episodes, and today particularly so. Andy is someone who brings in so much to the conversation. He has experience working with groups of all ages, communities in all different parts of the world, bringing them back to nature. In fact, you'll hear in the episode that he says he brings people together to connect them with nature so that they fall in love with nature. And when he works with the youth, this is really an effort to have them think outside of the traditional education system. This was a very difficult episode to name because Andy brings in so much to the conversation. And I'm thinking actually next season, I'll just say a conversation with so-and-so. It'll just make it a lot easier and more to the point, it won't reduce the conversations to simple titles. It'll allow them to grow and blossom and, and hopefully people will take uh, whatever they, they take from it without it being signposted. I'm very excited about this conversation because I do believe that this idea of bringing in professionals, bringing in practitioners, parents, the community is the future of school. And actually it will help us go beyond school where we can create a system that values different things than the current system today. And so we can leave behind the word school and come up with something else, bringing in the community, working with the community, working for the community, and that includes nature. You can always check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. And here's my conversation with Andy. Well, hi, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Really excited to hear about some of the work that you've been doing, but also particularly um, how you approach change and, and where you're coming from in terms of bringing some folks who might not necessarily be in the space of thinking about regeneration and, and moving in that direction. Uh, but first, I'll start asking you a question. Who are you and what story do you want to tell? Great. So my name is Andy Middleton. Um, I am a fourth generation change maker who lives on the west coast of Wales in the UK. And the broad story that I tell to people and that I try and get people to explore the different groups I work with is in part one of one of understanding and looking steadily into the scale of change that the future demands that we take but also bring a sense of mischief and play to that, recognizing that most of the cool shit hasn't been done yet. So once we find our feet and properly engage with the things that we already know we can do, rapid progress is genuinely possible in all sorts of good areas. And I want to explore a lot of this, this optimism and play and, and everything that that could mean. Before so, I'll ask you the question we ask of all our guests in order to get a shared definition. How do you define learning? 
I love I love this question. And so I was, I was reflecting on my the sweetest learning for me is learning about how to make things that I couldn't make before. And whether that's learning about how to grow vegetables in a better way in my garden or making toys for my grandkids, learning through the, the, the acquisition of skills and knowledge to solve problems that are worth solving is the sweetest application of learning for me. So there's something around learning being around help at its best about helping people to solve challenges that matter by taking in awareness of the context. So how do you do this? Tell, tell us a little bit more about, about um, your day-to-day, not just your work, but of course the work about how you move people towards uh, some of these, these changes and really what the change is and perhaps um, what you're trying to bring about. Uh, and of course, it depends on the clients. Sure. So, so to give it a sort of a mini potted biography on this, so I, grew, so I grew up on the West Coast of Wales, where I live now, and if someone had said to me as a child or as a teenager, you're going to spend your entire life living in the smallest city in Britain, I'd have thought it was a curse, and now it's a blessing. And people used to feel sorry for me living where I did, maybe partly before internet age and stuff, saying, what's it like living at the end of the world? And I, I view where we live as the start of the world, not the end of it. Whether it's the start or the end depends on which direction you're facing. And so I think when you face, look at the past and look at what, uh, compare what we've got to what people have in a traditional world, you could say it's the end because it always used to be the last place that would get everything. And I think you flip that on its head and pivot the other direction, saying what we're exp- what we're trying to build here is a sense of this is the first place that people can discover a new way of thinking and being that's congruent with that future. So I grew up, I grew up um, here on the coast. My my family before we were medics. My my the, my grandparents were kind of activists in the world of journalism and health. And I grew up with conversations around the dining table while I was on holiday with my grandparents or at home of just the frustrations of people trying, the frustrations and successes of people trying to get change to happen. So I guess it was a normal thing just to want to try and you know, play one's role in making that happen. And so from a very young age, you know, I was wheeled out as to say, hey, this, if this young kid can teach life-saving, any of you could teach it or whatever else it was. But this sense of agency, I suppose, was always, was always present in the house. And you know, I grew up playing out, I grew up playing in nature, did a degree in geography, which taught, which I didn't realize until years later, but that taught me systems thinking. And it taught me systems thinking because in geography and crossing geology, you move from glacial weathering at one level to the chemical weathering of a single grain of sand in adjacent lessons, or talk about the gas exchange at the surface of a leaf and climate systems. So that geography and geology teach people to zoom in and out to physical and temporal scale without getting seasick or vertigo. And that ability to shift scales, I think, has been really useful in terms of understanding how to kind of make sense of this sort of systems landscape. So my, my professional career was divided between starting an adventure school and, and more luckily for 20 odd years, teaching common sense to, to corporates. And we were able to teach common sense to corporates because generally speaking, it's not taught in school. And the adventure stuff started as a way of just taking people into nature to do cool things. That's morphed into this our mission now at TYF, um, which is an sort of employee-run adventure business is to get people to fall in love with nature so deeply that it changes the way they live. And our second mission is, is around how do we give young people and their parents, in effect, 
an unshakable confidence in their ability to make the change that matters. And do that by giving people loads of opportunity to practice making change in a way that won't kill you. So that when you do it for real, you've got the experience under the belt and the, muscle, the intellectual muscle and the cognitive muscle to know how to, to make change happen. And I moved through that into a, a variety of kind of non-exec roles in national parks and conservation organizations with government and third sector, but always kind of bringing that enterprise angle through. And, and so the work we do now is, or the work that I'm doing particularly, I guess, is bringing together people who are really competent in their own space, but have often never, ever spoken to others. So the, the work we're doing in North Star Transition is running transition labs, which bring highly competent people together who've just never been in the same room as people they should have been talking to for a couple of generations. I want to explore this because this goes a lot about what we try to do is to try to connect people outside of school and break that open. So give us an example, perhaps, of what that would look like. Um, uh, these people, where do they come from? How do they interact? Sure. So, so, one, so one, of the, one of the, I'll give you a really specific example. So this is in the world of healthcare. And it seems a really odd thing that, you know, you could be in primary school, you could be outside of primary school gates and listening to parents talking to their kids on the early stages of careers in dance, music, football, hockey, whatever their thing is. And from a really young age, kids can get onto a traje trajectory to become a professional, whatever that means, in those worlds. If you wanted to work in healthcare or well-being, pretty much you've got to wait until you're 18 and go to college. So in one of the professions where you'd think deep practice was more important than almost anything else, there's almost no support for young people. So we developed ideas with a bunch of health directors from health boards over here in the UK and elsewhere, saying, well, what would it look like if you were to train, if you were to give young people the maximum chance becoming the medics and nurses and wellbeing professionals who could change the system? And we developed a program called Future Generations Practitioner Program, which you've run online and residentially, to take young people through a process of learning how to use applied design thinking and critical thinking processes to solving real world challenges in the health sphere. So we had engineering directors building health sustainable cities. We had clinical directors from health boards talking about the design of hospitals. We had innovation directors from health boards talking about how to create a different kind of learning system for young people someone working in the outdoors to say, how do, we, how do we get people outdoors for preventative health? Setting real world challenges for young people. We coached them through a process of you know, addressing those challenges and they pitched them back to those people in the form of two minute videos, which A, may be some good ideas. And if nothing else, they get a sense of this is where 16 to 17 year olds are at the top of their thinking for better or for worse. And our goal would be to take that out to 20% of the population in the UK of 11 to 18 year olds who are gonna go into that career, which would be something like 40,000 people. And does that happen inside the school, outside? What, what are the, where's the context that this happens in? We're running it outside school at the moment because it's the easiest way in and doing kind of peer to peer. And, or, but sorry, it's a bit of both actually. We've done it outside school on the online version. And then we did an in-school version for, for what for a college. But, it, so, but I think outside is easiest to bring, to give every kid access, regardless of what the teachers want. But ideally, loads of schools would go, hang on, we could take that approach and use it 
you know, like high tech, high do and others, but to use real world problem solving, but do it in a way that kids are wrestling with and learning to understand the challenges that are shaping the future of the place they live around water, air, transport, food, well-being, real data, real numbers, real places. And, and at the start of COVID, one of the groups that we were working with was given a challenge by an innovation director in health to say, how might we speed up vaccinations by factor six? And these kids who'd never met each other before and had been trained in a really condensed bit of learning came up with ideas like, huh, let's, uh, let's contact all the diabetics in your city because they're really good at giving injections. And they, may, and they may have time to spare, as a for instance. And we shared these ideas back with the health directors and they were going, God, we haven't even thought of stuff like that. So I think it's young people, when they get that feedback to say your ideas do matter, lifts their confidence enormously. And I guess in terms of young people and the education agenda, particularly, you know, what most employers tell us and most of the top universities tell us is that your qualifications, your grades, only count as far as getting you into the first seat that you sit down in for an interview. Once you're sat down, they're irrelevant. And the only thing that counts then is what you've done that's different. And the things that make you different are more compelling stories than anyone else has got, in effect, to get onto the role or the career that you, that you most want to do. So what we try and do, I guess, is give young people the opportunity to build those stories. And that's something that's not told in school. That doesn't follow the narrative. It's always work hard, play by the rules. You'll get into the university of your choice. Just do what you know. There's, there's this idea of really standardizing people's experiences too, but that's not what gets people to where they want to be, whether it's university or somewhere else. And, and we know from the people we've spoken to, to say that if a young person you know, stood up and said, uh, you know, in response to the question, what was your greatest success in that gap year? They said, no, we didn't really have any success. We had an amazing failure because we thought we were going to succeed and this happened and this is what we learned. That person would get in because what they want is critical thinkers. And I guess, you know, in Wales, where I live, we're lucky because you've got a new education curriculum coming in, which is exactly in line with these kind of principles. But Every child, every young person does maths. They just tend to add up numbers that don't matter. So earlier today, I was in a local college talking about, I'm going to doing a session in a couple of weeks' time, talking to 70-odd lecturers about the future of their disciplines in, in around renewables and circular economy. And I was suggesting that the students in engineering and electrical engineering and so on might be given the responsibility for managing the carbon Manage in the carbon budget of their establishment. And we were sitting in a room, a massive kind of cafeteria space with three people around a table and every single light you could see was switched on. And if the students are given responsibility to run it, that wouldn't be the case because they'd find a way through the problem. So I think it's, the goal would be to get health boards, you know, social services, you know, food businesses, leisure businesses, farms, to, to, to understand the challenges that they as institutions are facing going forwards as we move into this low carbon, circular economy, regenerative kind of space and, and condense those into challenges that are small enough for people to get their heads around and go, huh, that's interesting, we can play with that today and we may get an, we may get an answer, but if not, we'll definitely be better informed about the challenges that are facing us down the line. 
What are some of the challenges that you're finding within the school to programs like this? And how do you get around them? So a, a really a really good example, it's a great question. A really good example of that is, is a magical project that started in Southeast Wales, in the old industrial area of Southeast Wales. And the project is Big Box Boyd, which in kind of half Welsh, half English is Big Food Box. And there's, a, there's an amazing head teacher called Janet Hayward. And she's exec director, or exec head of a couple of primary schools. And in one of them, they've got 65% free school meals. So 65% of the parents qualify their kids for school meals. And it's a separate story that Wales is about to give every primary kid free school meals anyway. But there's a lot of deprivation in that area. So what she did was she got hold of a couple of, convert, couple of shipping containers, converted them and turned them into fair share food stores. So they take surplus food from supermarkets, put it on the shelves of these small food stores, and parents can pay for it on a pay-as-you-feel basis. So you've got no money, you just get food for free. If you've got cash, you can pay a bit. The kids get taught about the food system and get some growing space in the schools to learn what happens if you put seeds in the ground and stuff comes out. And the, the easy, and government has been really good at funding support for this, we buy, and I'm one of the advisors on the project. And by the end of this year, we'll, we'll have 20,000 kids will be going through, going through the system to build food literacy, which is fantastic. The easy, and in terms of the challenge, the easy thing would be to create a cookie cutter approach to say, don't worry, we've done everything for you. Here's the container, just plug it in. And Janet is absolutely certain that what makes the magic is not doing that. And the feedback from the teachers is, is that they, in, in letting go of their need for everything to be prepared, they realize that sometimes the magic just happens. And the process of every school having to set up a charity, having to find trustees, having to answer their questions, having to work out their site and their local objections and all of this is what makes the project strong. So I think it's, it's recognizing that, that the best answer is actually a more complex, knotty, unpredictable one, but it'll end up in effect with those food boxes growing in the ground that's best for those schools, as opposed to being something that's parachuted in across the country in three or four years time, they'll be rusty and full of chairs which is not what you want for the, for the kids. So this opens up the massive door that takes us from mechanical thinking to living systems thinking. And many times in teacher college or wherever it might be, the traditional way is you plan a lesson and you get from point A to point B, here's your learning outcome, and we're going to get through this linear process. But what you're talking about isn't so much necessarily planning. It might be more about intention. It might be about letting it, seeing what, what develops. And that itself is, of course, um, there, there's a, there's a, place where we want to go but but we just let it be like a living system and what and what we're seeing is that in the first schools the first 60 or schools that have done this we do like months every month couple of months catch up the teachers and when you hear them tell their stories because they're doing it in an emergent way of course the stories are all different because they're place specific based on the kids and the teachers and everything else but it's in that it's in that non-predictability that the magic really emerges and, and, it's, and we're hoping that, that, the, that this Big Box Boy project could be a real seed in itself for a different way of thinking and to show how, yes, you've got to do maths and you've got to do other bits of the curriculum, but actually you can do it in different ways that really bring the subjects alive for kids in a way that goes forwards. And the bit that excites me around this in some ways is that 
one of our UK B Corps is a, is a kids' food company, a, a baby food company called Ella's Kitchen. They did some research in 2019 that showed that 67% of leaders who had kids had changed their sustainability policy at work as a consequence of conversations at the dining table. And that's before the teachers get trained. I think we've trained confident teachers that young people's ability to influence their parents through a combination of love and pestering can be incredibly powerful. I believe that. I know uh, my kid refuses to uh, use products that are tested on animals. And he really made us aware of just how many in our houses there. It happens all the time. Kids are massive influences. And, and at, what, at what age is that? That was in fifth grade. Yeah. So really young kids can have that really strong sense of right and wrong. And they, of course, can say that they can say, Dad, you've got to start doing this far more than any work colleague would dare do. They may say something in passing about you're driving the wrong car, but they won't say it every time. Otherwise, they stop getting invited out. So, so, I think, so I think the bit about the other big advantage, I guess, about bringing in real world, real world challenges to which nobody knows the answer is there is, of course, no right answer. And to a lot of the challenges, there is no answer, but you just explore it from a different perspective because you don't solve the problem. You ease it and get different perspectives. And I think that both helps to bring the uncertainty into the room because there's no fixed way of solving it, but it also gives young people access to a whole range of other discipline and kind of thought trains that they may not otherwise have been exposed to. But that uncertainty can be quite scary for a teacher, a teacher who has to be accountable to, to certain state standards, a teacher who has to be accountable to parents, to, to administrators. How do you navigate through that and help them themselves ease through that transition? So I guess there's, there's, a, there's a question of kind of goal and current state. So I, you know, I, I, would love, I would love to see a place, particularly where when young teacher trainees, training teachers are coming through, that, you know, that folks like us and, and, and the people that we hang out with get the opportunity to run you know, two-week summer camps that might happen for the summer before they start in school, where you teach them to be the wild, teaching the wild side of education, so including the influence skills and including the kind of the nudge skills so that when people have been in the game for 40 years longer than them, tell them it can't be done, you know how to kind of address those challenges through improv skills and through adaptation and through being courteous but challenging and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I think the, the other thing that we can do is that, you know, kids, if we, if we give them the headroom, can also do an amazing amount to support their teachers to do the right thing. So I think it's a little bit at the moment from every direction until you get to the point where you know that every teacher training college is actively on board with this. And I think, you know, sharing information online, you know, through podcasts, through through shared content, clearly massively important. And one of the other stakeholders that we haven't talked about are are the, the professionals, the, the businesses, the practitioners. How do you tell them or, or how do you open the doors for them to feel comfortable about having kids work on these projects? Because it's, it's, it's time intensive for them to, to a certain extent, to a large extent. Yeah. So I guess, so one of the things that we, we found particularly in kind of early, early days was that it seemed that when businesses were kind of in the practice again looking for their looking through their to-do list and going to go yeah i need to be doing some csr today corporate social responsibility they typically think about it with about a week's planning you know and, and phone up someone and go hey benjamin um you know you run the local charitable group what can we do 
And because you're busy and you've only been given like five minutes notice, you kind of give them a menial task to do, go and paint a fence or go and, you know, um, go and, go and dig, dig this bit of land over rather than saying, rather than reflecting on how do you want to use the time that you've got? So, you, you know, a lot of businesses will give employees one or two days a year to volunteer, but to volunteer for something that takes your skills backwards doesn't make sense. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to do exactly the same job as sales order processing or finance. But if we can help organizations align their volunteering work with stuff that adds resilience to the communities that they draw their customers or their staff from and give them different angles. So it might be, you know, you want to improve your confidence or go and do drama for the day or go and do something different, but be a lot more strategic about giving. But the big challenge, I guess, is that if you ask most businesses today what young people should be focusing on in education, it won't bear much relationship with what's coming because most businesses don't know. So I think there's a, there's a combined piece about almost like creating that shared uncertain future whereby these young people don't know where they're headed and your business doesn't know where it's going either. But together, if we start exploring some of these issues, and start saying, okay, well, actually, what, how different might the future be? And how could we arrive at it together? Bearing in mind, I want a job or I need to earn some money. And you, assume, you, know, you probably want to stick around if you can, rather than assume that most of these businesses haven't looked far enough over the hill yet. So the idea of you know, circular economy, regenerate, you know, regenerative zero carbon, for most organizations is still way, way off the page. So I think it's a co-learning co process that depends on creating safe space where you get you don't get to look stupid for not knowing the answer. Now, I want to pick you up on something you said earlier about uh, for you know uh, teachers who have forty years more experience, and you said it's not possible. Now, I heard you elsewhere uh, say uh, something that really caught my ear, which is if you think it's not possible, you just lack imagination. Walk me, walk us through that because I think it's such a powerful, powerful piece of wisdom. So thank you. And I think, I mean, I, I guess what, what really occurs to me with this is that sometimes I might find myself talking to, and it doesn't matter who the audience is. And, um, but one example would be um, in, in, in the change process in business, there's a model called the diffusion of innovation curve, which, which many people have heard bits of. So it, talk, it starts with pioneers and early adopters and so on. And, there is there is a model that suggests that these that the, that the tipping point comes when you've got the early you've got your early adopters and your pioneers have got it, and that's around about sixteen percent of our population. So when sixteen percent one six start to kind of right, I've got this and start walking in a different way, so to speak, it's less scary for other people to join them. So like in the Phil Silver's YouTube video, this is when the third person starts dancing, not the second. And so for, for the UK, for instance, that 16% is a population of around about 10 million. So, so our challenge together as educators is to work out, okay, we've got about five years to get 10 million people up to functional literate, functionally literate, both about ecosystems change and the alternatives and confident enough to do it. So if we take that as a start point, the reaction that we often get 
is to say, yeah, but that, I, yeah, I, I can understand what you're saying, Benjamin, but you've got to be more realistic. And you kind of go, so which bit of reality are you talking about? The physics? About saying if you don't change the climate and biodiversity back to a safe place, that it will be in danger? Or actually, are you conflating being more realistic with your own level of comfort about the seriousness or the speed of response that we need? So usually, my take that when people say you need to be more realistic is because they don't lack the imagine they lack the imagination, and maybe the courage to accept the fact that the that the answer is the answer. So rather than worrying that we haven't got enough resources, if you focus on it, sparking our imagination to say, okay, that's a big goal, but who else do we need to bring in the room to help us? Which organisations of a million people could already help us? Which football teams could you get on side? Which musicians would back us and by by staying with the imagination and having that and the creative juice of that for longer i guess it allows us to stop being paralyzed by fear by the scale of challenge that we've got coming ahead and too often i think people go well i'd love to train 10 million people but we haven't got the resources so who said anything about cost who said anything about money it's not all about the money and i think when teachers when teachers, for instance, and it's not singling them out as being people who don't do this, but if educators were to say, yeah, I'd love to get more kids solving real-world challenges in school, but we haven't got the resources, the chances are they've never spoken to any parents to say, hey, do you, do you folks do volunteering at work? Could you help us? And that's just about having the imagination for asking a question to which you have no idea what the answer is going to be. But if you ask those questions, out of your school of a thousand kids, how, it would be impossible for let, to have, get less than a hundred parents going. Sure, we can help, and the teachers don't need to put any more resource in at all, and it won't cost anything. But I think, and uh, and so bringing our imagination and playfulness to that, and it's this idea, I guess, that school often singles you out for being smart if we know all of the answers. And I think sometimes in that imagination and playful space, we need to be smart, acknowledged as smart for not knowing any of the answers, but knowing the questions that start to find out the things that you need to know. And working with the system in which you are or redesigning it where it needs to be done and bringing in the parents, it might be quite, again, something that's unsettling, but really it's a normal part of it because as you mentioned earlier, the kids go and eat at the dining room table anyway. The parents are already in the system they're just maybe not physically in the classroom yet. And, and it's this odd thing around that, you know, which you'll know as, as someone working in the education space, is that one of the greatest compliments that you can pay someone is asking their opinion. Hey, do you think I could, can I pick your brains for a few minutes? Well, me, I'd love to. So just the act of asking parents what they think about how do we bring real-world challenges, whether it's in Chiang Mai or St. David's, into the, into the school place, is an act of giving, not taking. But of course, we don't necessarily get taught that at school. <laughs> I want to ask you also about this, what you mentioned about getting people to fall in love with nature. Can you tell us a story of when that happened and the transformative power? And also particularly maybe from, from, a, from a child's point of view, how that might work? What do you see? Tell us about that story and, and your efforts in that, in that space of getting people to fall in love with nature. Sure. So... So I guess it, it would. My experience is that it's it's quite easy to like nature, 
you know, to find it useful, um, you know, to think it's a nice place, it's a nice view, but not connect that view or the quality of life or the quality of the system that that's part of, in, in not connect that in any way to you. And they, the Oxford English Dictionary, if I remember rightly, defines nature as everything in the world that's not human. And you kind of go back to this Cartesian split of kind of, of, of man, mankind and nature as being separate. Nature is red in tooth and claw. And it's our job to beat it and get it to serve us. And we still have this kind of absurd language around conquering nature or beating nature. Um, there's a piece I did, I put a tweet out on the other day about a newspaper headline in the UK that talked about a, an, an adder, a UK snake, attacking a boy because the snake was lurking in the grass. And no, no, the snake lives in the grass and the boy was running through it. And actually, if you could tell the story in a different way, but so I guess the connecting to nature piece is trying to find ways of helping experience nature so that they see themselves and nature as being part of the same thing and recognize that both their actions at a practical level impact nature, but also that they can see themselves, you know, in a kind of cliched way for being a part of nature rather than apart from it. And some small practices, like, like in, in bio, when we're teaching biomimicry, you know, we've just sometimes got people to sit, to do, a, do a short solo exercise of just noticing nature in the square metre around where you sit. And of course, you know, the vast majority of people have never, ever looked at the grass under their feet. And just noticing and noticing the connections between the blades of grass or the way that the, the raindrops are making the leaves spring or whatever else just gets to, alerts the senses. So we, we're in really, really early days of understanding how to do this. So we've just had someone finish a PhD with us on co-steering and nature connection. We're working with Schumacher College master's students on their movement mind and ecology course to really play out how, when we're taking people into these intense, sometimes quite adventurous natural environments through co-steering, sea kayaking particularly, how do you get them to do that in a way that gets them to go bang and just drop to a different level of understanding? Some of it can be as simple as when we're co-steering, which is this wonderful exercise, we can explore in the, key, the coast at sea level. When you, when you kind of reach out and pick up a piece of pepper dulse seaweed, which is a, an, amazing, an amazing seaweed that tastes of garlic and chili, and you pick it off the rock and get people to put it straight into their mouth when they're swimming, it has so much more impact than watching a piece of television with David Attenborough. And then talking about how clean would you like the sea to be that this seaweed grows in. And the weapon just never thought about the relationship between the inside of their body and the ocean around them. So it's working out how do we do this by stealth in a way that's joyful, that gets people afterwards to go, God, it's not what I was expecting, but I'm so glad you taught us that. And hopefully, when those people go back, it will literally affect the decisions they make about what they buy, how they buy things, and how they talk to other people about the value that nature brings, not only to our own lives, but to future generations as well. And how much room do you think schools, in the more traditional sense, and, and we're going to generalize about this, how much room do you think schools have to allow for this kind of experience? What, what limits them? What opportunities are there currently? So, so to put that into a Wales context, so Wales a population of 3 million people. It's got 8,000 outdoor instructors. And yet to date, like about 30 of them have been trained in Nature Connection. 
<laughs> so I guess, you know, many schools take people outdoors, but they just take them to run in nature. And sometimes, of course, just running wild and playing frisbee and leaping a stream is what you need to be doing. But to, to make sure that though, to get to a point where those who take others into nature have been trained on how to do this is one of the ways that you can do it. It doesn't cost any more. You just tell a different story. So I'm working with other colleagues in the UK to develop a certificate in planetary health. In fact, like having future generations catalysts so you can create like a, a bootstrap course to get people to understand the kind of 30 biggest challenges and systems connections that are going to still shape our futures and, and do that in a way that brings those content to life for people so that when they're out in nature, that they can, they can pick up a handful of soil when they're stopping for lunch and go, hey, have you guys ever thought about soil fertility or this or that? And just put the soil in your hand and wonder, how did it get here? Or just the gentler, the gentler piece as alongside, has got a place alongside, you know, cycling full speed downhill on a mountain bike. Both have got their place, but we need to find time to stop and kind of really consider it as well, I think. Listen, Andy, thank you so much for all your ideas and, and, and certainly this, this ability to connect the world from outside the classroom back in. And, and, and I love this idea of, of getting kids to fall in love with nature and, and making that distinct from just liking nature or being fond of nature. Two more questions. One, what books are you reading right now? So books I'm reading right now, I just, um, just finished uh, Merlin Sheldrake's wonderful book, Entangled Life. Um, about which is the world of about fungi, and I think that's got particular resonance around, um, you know, the, the way that you know life is connected under the ground and stuff. But these, you know, fungi connect the trees, you know, and it's it's been people talk slightly tongue in cheek about the wood wide web, but about this connectivity. But again, how do we? Which triggers a thought in me about how do we make sure that, in the same way that the trees in the forest are connected by fungi. How do we connect the institutions in our communities through those kind of fibers that connect the past knowledge and insight and effect between them? Because that's what the, that's what the fungal networks do. So I've been reading that, and and I keep coming back. I keep referencing the Good Ancestor by Roman Kuznarik, which is a gorgeous, a gorgeous book about long-term thinking. And and what Roman talks about is to how saying how do we get way beyond long-term strategy being talking about three to five years but how do we get into that multi-generational hundreds of years ahead thinking knowing that the people who live then will a be our our descendants and they will be experiencing the world as a consequence of decisions we make so learning learning how to think longer is a really important place and again i think collectively we're only just starting to get our language around that and just to finish on that point Last, um, last summer, we had an archeological dig on the beach beneath my house, about a kilometer from where I live. And we were, um, we were excavating an old chapel that had been damaged by the sea in the storms the previous year. And the people on this chapel, the people buried in this chapel were, had been put there about 1,300 years ago. And I spent a whole day I spent a whole day excavating one person's grave and kind of with my brush, my brush kind of brushing the, brushing the sand away from this person's orbit and off their cheeks and out of their ribs. And that's like 40 generations ago. 
and it just really made me think about how completely our, our language is. We know more about that person, of course, 40 generations ago than we even think about anyone that far ahead. And of course, our species will continue all being well. But how do we bring the language into schools to imagine taking part of the responsibility now for the well-being of those people that much further ahead and really see ourselves as that kind of inflection point in that arc of travel? You know, what's our role as educators, as students, as citizens in, in thinking about the future as far ahead as we can think back? What are your plans coming up? What's on your mind? What are some of the things that you're thinking about or feeling? So I, I get the bits that the bits that are kind of really exciting me now are bringing the certificate of planetary health to life at scale, which we're going to be trialing at this side of the summer, and um, and then hopefully rolling that out in the autumn, so we can start to imagine upscaling whole populations with the kind of functional skills to go. All right, I know when to cross the road, type stuff. That that's really exciting me. We've got a new team of adventure guides starting at TYF, and I'm not day to day involved in the business, but we've got an amazing team of doctoral students and you know super bright young people who are going to be training over the next couple of weeks on how to think differently and ask those questions, and just seeing knowing that they can they will impact thousands of people in the conversations that they have. That is that's super exciting because that's the change happening on the ground and. The bit that's a real privilege, an odd privilege in some ways, is that are these transition labs that we're running through North Star Transition, bringing together these experts who've never spoken to each other. So, so in Wales, are bringing together in experts at the intersection of health, nature, and food, and discovering that that the farmers have never ever sat down in the same room as health people. And the NGOs have never sat down and talked to the health people. Okay, weird. And so we created a safe space for them to do that. And they realized, hey, you're, you're okay after all. But it's, it's not that they don't like each other, they just never met. So, and we've been running labs around things like optimizing the food system for human health, which means, of course, you need to optimize soils and biodiversity for human health. And that's for a population of about 400,000. That's just starting to kind of early strands of putting a different song together, but that sounds really exciting and people are really enjoying the chance. And I guess throughout all of this sort of work, the design question we ask people is, if you took the evidence around you at face value and looked steadily at that future, to use Bill Sharp's words, and knew that you couldn't, so you look steadily at the future, you take the evidence of climate and biodiversity at face value and knew that you couldn't fail, what is it that you'd set out to do? And in some ways, no matter how complex, challenging, difficult, or daunting the answer might be, the one thing that it is, is the truth. And when you kind of get to the truth of what it is that you need to answer, my take is that when, you, when people get to that point, they can go, now I know what I've got to do. Because you're not like you're not pretending anymore that something else is more important, and I think getting that lifting the veils off that kind of north star clarity is one of the best things, and that allows people then to start to really get to grips. And of course, clear, bold goals are what inspires other people to gather around the fire with you. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Val. 
This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you for listening. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find more podcasts, articles, resources, conference talks, a whole bunch of things that we hope you'll find interesting as we think about how our thinking and actions can contribute to the thriving of the BioCollective. Of course, you can check out our articles as well on Intrepid Ed News. That's www.intrepidednews.com. Again, our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check us out on LinkedIn as well. Connect, send us a message. We're always keen to speak with people. In the meantime, we hope to hear from you soon. We've got a couple of very exciting episodes coming up uh, in the next month. And until then, speak to you soon.